Thanks, Sarah. Great job. Thanks, you guys. Well, the rest of you, too, for leading us in worship. Good morning again. Um, yeah, I get to introduce our speaker today. Chris, would you come forward? Craig, do you want to stand up and flex or something? or Just stand up and be known. <laughs> Chris and Craig Westhoff. Um, yeah, it's a real... Uh, <laughs> is that what you usually do when you go to another church? Just, we like them that they love. I just feel like they're a part of our family. Um, Chris serves on the United States and Global Communities Oversight Teams for 24-7 Prayer. We will be doing our 12th or 13th annual uh, season of 24-7 Prayer beginning March the 6th back in our prayer room. So Chris and Craig are a part of that oversight team for global communities, uh, particularly in the realm of the prophetic, as I understand that. Chris is also the author and the developer of Reframing the Prophetic, which is a woot woot. <laughs> uh, Jane and Heather have been uh, being a, have been a part of that uh, for the last couple of weeks, and that's a, a course that kind of deals with the heart and the theology, the pulse of the prophetic uh, in the scripture, so that it could be reframed for us in a way that it can do what God's called it to do: to uh, exhort, encourage, and to um, to bring people into alignment with what God's doing. She and Craig also run a missions uh, group called Akuo Ministries. And they serve the persecuted church, support and encourage the persecuted church in the Middle East. Craig also, I'm just going down the road. Craig also has a, um, uh, a seminar called Illuminated Soul, also a podcast, um, which is really beautiful work and encouragement and a, and a podcast. Did I mention the podcast? One more time. Yeah. You can look them up. Um, yeah, I just want to pray for you, Chris, and then release you to us. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you have gathered. We thank you for bringing Chris and Craig here. And um, ask, Lord, that in the name of Jesus, Chris would, even as the scriptures say, bring us the very words of God. I ask for the filling of the Holy Spirit, the release of wisdom and understanding, and the, the heart of the pastor and the prophet to come forth. Lord, open our ears and our hearts to hear and engage our minds and our bodies to act. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, everybody. It's so great to be here. We lived here for four years between 2012 and 2016. My husband's job brought us here. And um, when he quit that job, we went back to Tulsa, which we consider home. And But I, I miss this place. I miss, I miss Indy. It's such a great city, and it's so beautiful. And we never came here. I'm like, what were we thinking? This is great. I love these people. So we are dear, dear friends with Jonathan Prosser. How many people like encounter God with his violin? We've known Jonathan for 20 plus years. He hasn't changed. I look a whole lot older. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. Anyway, um, Randy asked me to share on Deborah today. And I, uh, I'm pretty excited to do so. She's an amazing woman, an amazing woman. It was fun to dive in to study her life and the scripture and Judges 4 is the primary uh, place where they tell the story of Deborah and Barak. Deborah and Barak together is what we're going to be talking about because I'm, I actually got a little sidetracked as I was studying about Deborah. I became more fascinated with Barak, and I'll explain that in a few minutes, but she lived somewhere around 1100 BC, and, uh, and today we're just going to glimpse like one brief moment of her story, which feels really important. But first, I want to set the stage. 
Israel at this point in time was, um, all it says that they had done evil in the sight of the Lord, and so he sold them into uh, oppression under the Canaanites. Oh, I hate scriptures like that. I mean, that's just really hard, isn't it? And at this point in the story, they've been under oppression from the Canaanites in slavery for 20 years. And it says it was severe oppression because they had um, 900 chariots and they were severely oppressed. So all these are just like quick, short, one-sentence descriptions. And I I have so many questions, don't you? Like, I I just want to know so many things about that, but 20 years. So can you imagine 20 years ago what you were doing and what you've done over your life for the last 20 years? And imagine if that was um, a completely different story and you had been enslaved for 20 years and under severe oppression. 20 years is a long time. Most people who are adults in the middle of our story had really all only known oppression and slavery. Like that's that tells us a lot about this people that we're about to read this story about, doesn't it? It tells us um, the people, the mindsets that they might have had, the, the strength that they might have felt or not felt, the, the sorrow that they were probably living under. I feel immense sorrow, and we've been under oppression by this global enemy called COVID for two years. I can't imagine being under oppression by a mighty army that was so cruel to them for 20 years and that how how sad I'm just imagining how sad and weak they must have been so we're going to begin I'm going to read starting in verse 6 now she is Deborah she sent and summoned Barak the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali please forgive me if my pronunciation is wrong did I mention that Deborah was both prophet and judge of Israel at this point in time, the highest, two of the highest positions in the land was held by a a woman. Just saying. She summoned Barak and said, behold, the Lord, the God of Israel has commanded, go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali, and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you, Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And we're just going to stay there. I'm not even going to tell you the end of the story. We're just going to hover right in that couple of paragraphs. Because Barak, up until this point, he... Um, we don't know who he is. Like, he's never been mentioned in the scripture. He, he just shows up in the story right here at this point in time as this guy. The, remember, they were enslaved. So it's not like they already had an army. It's not like Barak was already a general of a shiny army. It's, we don't know who he is. What, did he ever lead a military before? We, did he have, uh, it's doubtful. 
20 years. Remember the 20 years? Like that 20 years of oppression, and here's this guy, Barack. And we know, I mean, we all know God well enough. Barack was probably the quietest, most afraid, weakest man in the bunch because that's what God tends to do, right? I mean, I'm just imagining. It doesn't say, but Barack was, was um, nobody that we had ever heard of before. So he's, as far as we can tell, it sure seems like he has no military experience. It's not like they all went off to boot camp for months on end and trained. They certainly didn't have matching outfits. I, want, I just kind of picture a, a group of farmers with pitchforks. I mean, what, where do they get their, did they have guns? Did they have, like, what, what weapons did they have? Like, what did they look like? What, they, he just gathered 10,000 men to go to this place and conquer the people that had been oppressing them for 20 years. I mean, can you put yourself in Barack's position? I just sat there for days imagining this call from God. So we're witnessing Barack's moment where he's being called by God to do something utterly insane. I mean, utterly insane. They've been oppressed what, by a military with 900 chariots for 20 years. We don't know how old Barak is. And this woman who is now a prophet and a judge over Israel is saying, I have a word for you. <laughs> and this is what I want you to do. And his response was, I will go if you come with me. This was not a mighty army. Not at all. God, we can talk in here. Like, I, I know I can tell you that God chooses the weak things of the world to shame that which is wise. We, we often talk about how, you know, he is strong in our weaknesses, right? We can preach it from the pulpit. But, but the minute I walk out those doors and I feel weakness, I panic. Like, do we, I don't live that way. I don't embrace my weaknesses. I don't really, like, I, I still despise it when I'm weak. I, our culture is surrounded by mindsets that idolize strength, and we're, we're entrenched in that. It's like we're in a crockpot of, of a culture that lifts up and, and highlights strong people. We, we still look at, like, the, the good-looking, popular ones and presume they have a mighty call of God. Like, even subconsciously, we still think that way, don't we? We don't look at the, the quiet, stuttering man in the back of the room or, or the 12-year-old the girl that's sitting in some chair that never talks. We don't look at her and think, she's got a mighty call of God on her life. Not normally. We don't presume such things. Is that just me? Are you guys with me on that? Like, just, can we just acknowledge that our culture, we don't think like that naturally? And I, I made myself a list. Can I read this list to you? These are the people that God chooses in the scripture. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses stuttered. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. <laughs> Moving on. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while praying. I have done that. Anybody else? 
Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an ulcer, and Lazarus was dead. <laughs> I mean, I think there's hope for us, right? I mean, seriously, I think there's hope for us. Like all the other moments in the scripture, there's so many questions that we have, but we know that God chooses the weak. He wants us to be weak. We are weak. We, we spend most of our days trying to deny the fact that we're weak or trying to overcome our weaknesses. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but there's an element of the poverty of spirit that calls us to embrace our weakness, to lean into the fact that we are weak. We are weak and frail and vulnerable human beings. And human beings are some of the most fragile creatures on the planet. We don't normally hunt and eat our own food. Like, we, we are quite dependent on many things, especially in our present culture. We are weak and frail human beings. But we are so uncomfortable with that notion, aren't we? Most of us are either depressed or anxious because we, um, we don't feel like we should be depressed or anxious. We should be victorious. We should be overcomers. We should be... Um, mighty and have these awesome prayer lives and heavily anointed when we should be this and we should be that and we should have more Bible memorized and we should spend more time in prayer with God. We should be mighty. God chooses the weak things of the world. And I'm so thankful. As we read about Barak and Deborah, I want to talk... like. Like I said, I have so many questions about the things that are not said. And in so many places in the scripture, I find myself asking so many questions that are impossible to answer. I don't know if you guys do that. I love sitting in the questions that can't be answered. It makes me much more comfortable. <laughs> it's quick answers that make me nervous sometimes. But, but in this place, it's, it's really good to acknowledge what they did tell us because the writer of this book told us the things he told us on purpose. He left out things that didn't seem to matter to him. Even though I have questions about all those things, I'm like, what were they wearing? Did they have uniforms? Like, that just wasn't important to write about. But what, what was important, once again, was the story of his calling. Every word, as far as we can tell, the moment of his calling. And throughout the scripture, this, this conversation that God has with another human being in the moment of what they're being called to is documented. We have Moses in the burning bush. We have Samuel as a child, Joshua needing great courage, Saul on the Damascus road, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Every word of their moment of encounter, their moment of calling is recorded for our sake. And every moment of that recorded conversation demonstrates just how weak they are. That seems to even be the point. We would highlight the fact that the point is what they're being called to, but, but can't we at least acknowledge that uh, the, the, the equal point in every one of those stories is how weak and unlikely they are? It seems to be at least one of the main points of these conversations that they record from God. Deborah calls this guy and asks him to do something quite crazy. Gather 10,000 men, enslaved, oppressed men, and let's fight against our oppressors. It's Barak that fascinates me. 
as I started to read through the commentaries on this story, it was rather discouraging. Of course, I was reading through, on purpose, I was reading through the commentaries on this story <laughs> because um, like, they were mostly white American men. And, I, and I, I'm not gonna do, I'm not gonna bash anybody here because we're, you know, we're all white, middle-aged American, not middle-aged, middle America people is what I meant. We're not all middle-aged. A lot of us are though, I have to acknowledge that. Uh, <laughs> but, um, so Barack, uh, we don't know who he is, but the commentaries that wrote about him aren't very nice to him. Most of them, um, there, was, there were whole commentaries and, and articles written about how weak he was. That he was so, he was clearly just not a good leader and he, and he depended on a woman. And you know, in our culture, we still consider that an insult to be compared. <laughs> If a man is to be compared to a woman, it's an insult, which I think that's really not cool, to be honest. Any one of you men, I hope, would be honored to be compared to Deborah. Many of the commentaries criticized and said he was doubting. He had doubts. He, he wasn't immediately obedient. But the way that I read this story, it actually made me a weep. Because, you know, if you caught it, she said, yes, I'll go with you. But you must know that the glory will be given to a woman. He could have changed his mind. He could have said, oh, that's all right, I want the glory. You stay here, I'm going. He could have responded like, oh, I got this. You know, I can do this. I'm going to da 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 like we, like even Mighty Mouse, you know, like da da I'm going to take this army and we're going to conquer. Like I, his response was, only if you come with me. Why do we see that as weakness? And why do we despise that weakness? Why do most of these commentaries despise the weakness that they see in Barack? Is that not a demonstration of the culture that I was just talking about? Like, what if his dependence on Deborah was the smartest thing that a military commander ever did? That this was his access to the voice of God, that she was both prophet and judge, and she had been proven to be wise and to hold and carry the will of God, knowledge of the will of the Father with her. That's why I believe he's like, I'm only doing this. I will do it. First of all, can we acknowledge the power of his yes? In his weakness, in his enslavement, he said, yes, as long as I have the voice of God with me, as long as I know the will of God, as long as you come with me because I know that I cannot do this on my own. Isn't that wisdom? Isn't that what we're all knowing? We know we can't do anything without God. At least we say we do. And why do we, so many, I mean, it was at least nine or ten different commentaries slammed Barack to the wall in his weakness. Even that, like, yeah, we should, we're supposed to boast in our weakness. When was the last time you went to a church service where we boasted in our weaknesses? I want to go to that church service where we testify about our weaknesses. Barack could have changed his mind and taken the glory for himself. But to me, he chose God's voice over glory. 
And we are in a culture that idolizes strength. We idolize power. And we sure want the glory. Has it ever happened to you where you did something pretty awesome and somebody else got the credit? I mean, how does that feel? It's awful. Right? I mean, none of us like that. It would throw us usually into some crisis that we would be like, well, maybe I should tell somebody and this isn't right and, and our justice bone would be inflared and, you know. And Brock knows ahead of time, I'm not going to get glory for this. I just need the voice of God. He laid his life down to fight against his oppressors, knowing ahead of time that he was going to get zero glory for it. To me, Barack is a hero. He is my absolute hero. In, um, in the early 2000s, I don't know if you guys will remember this, it was kind of massive news throughout most charismatic churches, but there was a, a, a string of dead raisings in Mozambique. Like a whole bunch of them, people being raised from the dead. We were hearing all these stories and they were spreading far and wide. And um, our friends at that point in time, they hopped on a plane and went. They're like, we've got to see this for ourselves. And so they went and they, it was with Heidi Baker and, and uh, they got there and Heidi brought them into a room and they, um, it was a tent with dirt floor with folding, a fold-out table and chairs. And she just sat them at this table and said, I'll be right back. And she walked into this room a few minutes later with a whole group of people who sat around the table. She went around the table one by one, and she, they were all indigenous, all from the, the neighboring villages. She looked at each one, and she said, this one right here has raised seven people from the dead. This, this woman right here, she raised, she's raised like 12 people from the dead. And she didn't even get to the third person before all mayhem broke loose in this room. And people started screaming. And my friends were like, just didn't even know what was happening. They were hoping to learn some of the secrets of how they got the dead raised and bring it back home for great signs and wonders. Like, that's what they were there for. But all of these people were now underneath the table, throwing dirt on their faces, screaming at the top of their lungs, saying, no, it wasn't me. Don't give me the glory. I can't take the glory. It was the Lord. It was the Lord. And they wouldn't get back up from under the table until our white American friends had left the room. And they wouldn't let their faces be seen again by chance that they would receive any of the glory. Guys, I probably would have put it on Facebook. <laughs> like, our culture, we, we broadcast our signs and wonders, don't we? We make movies out of them. We have YouTube channels. Like, we tell everybody, we testify. And I'm not saying that's bad. I believe in testimony. But, but there's something of the pursuit of the glory of man that is evil. And it hinders us. But it's so entrenched in our culture, we hunger for it. We would never talk about it because we know better, but we still hunger for it. We still want other people to think well of us. We still want the glory of man from things that we're doing. And, and this story from Africa in this moment, was it just still wrecks me. It still wrecks me. It, still, it so confronts our culture that we hunger for glory. And here is Barack about to most likely die. And his friends... 
that he lived with and had been enslaved with were most likely going to give up their life. And he didn't care if he got the glory. He knew he wasn't going to get the glory. He just wanted the voice of God. I think that's why we see Barak listed in the great hall of faith of Hebrews 11. How could these commentaries be hard on Barak when he is in the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11? Is that not reading the scripture through our cultural lens? You know, we have um, the privilege, as Randy said earlier, of working with the persecuted church primarily in the Middle East. We've been to some other places as well. It's, uh, it's more for our sake than theirs. I'll be honest with you. They, they've changed our life. Um, <laughs> the gospel is so clear when it's a matter of life or death. Right now, across the Middle East, is the largest revival in human history happening right now. The fastest growing church ever to exist ever in human history is right now in the underground church in Iran. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Muslims are coming to the Lord every day. They are being baptized. There's signs and there's wonders and the, the sick are being healed and the dead are being raised and nobody's talking about it because more people will lose their lives if America finds out and starts broadcasting it everywhere. So don't tell anybody. <laughs> that they're weak. They know they're weak. They can't get up and walk out their front door without the strength of the Lord. They, there's no doubt. They're choosing Jesus at, at, and at the risk of death, at gunfire. Like, they choose the glory of Jesus to be known in their midst at the risk of their own life every day. They're, they wrestle over, what do I do with evangelism? Because if I share my faith, I will most likely die. But that person might receive the Lord right before I die, and that would be worth it. Like, they, these are the kinds of decisions that they are making. They asked us to come and do an evangelism conference so that they could be sent, sent back into the underground church of Syria a couple years ago so that they could evangelize. And they had already reconciled. I might, I might die, but if somebody else can know Jesus, it's worth it. One of the, the friends of ours, she's 24 years old. She's a, a Muslim. She um, lives, I'm, well, I'm not going to tell you where, um, but she, her Muslim family, if they found out that she had given her life to the Lord, they would kill her, and it would be legal. Uh, it's, it's kind of the normal cultural thing to do. So she's in hiding in her own home. She still wears her hijab, and she, um, we Zoom every now and then, and we're, she's in a closet, and she's got to, like, whisper and look around and make sure nobody can hear her, and thank God their English isn't as good as hers. But she is on the streets of her city every day sharing her faith, with people. She's, she hears the voice of God. She says, that, see that soldier? One day she went, and go, went to pray for a soldier because God told her that she, like, he had, so I forget it was a liver or a kidney that was sick and needed healing, and she had a healing gift. So she, she's like, oh, God told me. So she went up to a soldier and ended up praying for him, and he got healed. Like, but you realize what could have happened to her on that day? Boldness comes in the middle of weakness. 
power comes in the middle of weakness. That scripture is serious. It's literal. It means something. It's, it's so incredibly important. And we are a strong and mighty nation, aren't we? We idolize strength and we're missing the point altogether. What if the weak state that we're in right now is actually the best possible condition for revival. What if two years into this pandemic in a nation that is more divided than it's ever been and this division over every possible topic that we could possibly divide on, we're broken, we're bruised, there's been, we've all lost loved ones. What if this is the exact moment for revival because of our weakness? We shouldn't have to try to overcome our weakness. Well, we do want healing. I'm not saying that, but what if our weakness is the point? What if it's in our weakness that he is really strong? What if, my friends, what if my grace is sufficient for you? My power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. <laughs> therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults. I've never been well content with insults. I just needed to say that. <laughs> with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If you will go with me, then I will go. It reminds me of Ruth to Naomi when she says, where you go, I will go. And of course, it reminds me of Moses in Exodus 33. He says the same thing to the Lord. If you go, I will go. This is what Barak was saying to Deborah. But our culture has gotten it all twisted up. I tell you one more story. Um, a couple of you might have been with us. I don't remember. No, I don't think so. It was just Craig. I'm sorry. I've got some friends here <laughs> that have dragged with me around the world. Um, we were in, uh, this was a few years ago. I think it was 2008 or 9. It was in the, the height of when the Syrian war was just exploding. And our dear friends pastor a church in Damascus, Syria. And uh, so they brought their whole crew out. We met them in Beirut. We have some other friends who were in Beirut. And we were having a time of just, we're going to be there. We're going to hold them. We're going to love on them. We're going to pray. We're going to worship. We're going to stand with our friends in the middle of this outbreak. It was horrifying. I mean, every, like, 30 minutes, they were getting more news of another city being bombed. And, and I mean, they would, they, I can't tell you how many times Craig held these big, strong Arabic men as they sobbed in his arms. Their connection with their nation is fierce. And their nation was in, like, on fire. It was on fire. And, um, you know, you know when the Lord asks you to do things and say things to other people that you're not doing yourself? You, it's like, am I, I think I'm being a hypocrite here because they're, they, I need to sit at their feet. I need to learn from them. And I don't, I, I'm, I am I'm not worthy to be prophesying to these people. But can you hear it? That's the deception of our culture. None of us are worthy. We're never worthy. 
We're never going to be worthy to speak his words. We're never going to be worthy to stand up here and have all of you really nice people listen to me for 40 minutes. I'm never going to be worthy for that. You're never going to be worthy to fulfill the call of God on your life. That's the point. You're never going to feel strong enough. You're never going to feel good enough. You're never going to feel mighty enough. You're never going to feel spiritually mature enough. That's the point. We are not worthy. And on that conference, it changed my life forever as I stood up there. And the, the, the picture I was seeing, honey, can I borrow you for a second? I didn't tell you ahead of time. He has no idea what I'm about to do. But I was seeing this picture. Thank you. I should know better. I don't think I've ever preached a message without crying. I'm sorry. No, I'm not really. I don't really care. Okay. Um, <laughs> fake apologies. Okay. Um, so this picture I was seeing, so you just need to stand there and be strong like you are and face me, face me. So the picture I was seeing was them like leaning on the Lord, right? Like lean on the Lord. But what I, um, what I heard the Father, stay right there. What I heard the Father um, saying and I saw him, it was like he was screaming to his sons and daughters in Syria, just screaming and I, like, lean harder. He was standing like it was almost like he was prophesying over this balcony, and he was lean harder. And so I just got up front and I started screaming to these Syrians to lean harder. And it wasn't like this. Now you can you know what I'm doing. Remember this? <laughs> now you back off, back down, all the way. How hard can we lean? How hard are we supposed to lean? where there's no other option. I cannot walk right now if he moves. I cannot do anything but fall if he moves. How hard can we lean? Thank you. I love you. I'm glad you're strong. <laughs> I feel that for us. Can we lean harder? Which means an embrace of weakness a distaste for the glory of man. That we will take the voice of God, we will take his presence, we will take his will, he will take his direction, we will take his, his being with us and gladly sacrifice any glory if other people think we're weak because we're leaning so hard that we would fall without him. Let us see that for what it really is. So... How many of you are feeling weak these days? I mean, I'm serious. I want to know. Praise the Lord. That sounds like you're in a good place. How many of us are feeling tired these days? We might just be on the brink of revival. How many of us are feeling sad, anxious, or depressed? How many of us are struggling with hopelessness? I think we're on the brink of something amazing. If we could just see this moment and know we are embracing our weaknesses, not trying to get out of them. We are human beings. We are weak. We are frail. We are vulnerable. That's exactly what we're supposed to be. 
That's exactly what we're supposed to be. Johannes Metz has one of my favorite books of all time on this, um, the spirit of poverty. No? Poverty of spirit. Backwards. Poverty of spirit. I highly recommend it. He's a Catholic priest. It'll probably trigger half of us. It triggers me every time I read it in all the best ways. By the end of his book, as he really unpacks the poverty of spirit as embracing our weaknesses, embracing our frailties, embracing our humanity, and knowing that it's actually in those places that we find him, it's in those places of utter vulnerability, of, not, of no self-protection, of just laying bare in our weakness and our distress and our, our discomforts and our, our brokenness, that it's in those places that we actually find him. And then he is strong. At the end of this book, he says, we have one of two choices, to obediently accept our innate poverty or to become the slave of anxiety. If you go with me, then I will go. I feel like that's the call for us today. <laughs> it's twofold. Barack said yes, but only if you go with me. I wonder what conversations the Lord has been having with you these last couple of years that were probably recorded in heaven as he was talking to you about different things he was asking you to do. I wonder what conversations are happening right now. So I'm asking, well, we can bring the music guys up and the prayer team. I always forget about that. Come on up, guys. So here's what I'm asking. Can we first try our best to say the prayer of, I am, I'm going to rest in my frailty. I am weak, and it's okay. I'm going to embrace my weakness, embrace my brokenness, and in that weakness, I say yes. To whatever it is you want me to do, I say yes. I'm not going to wait till I get strong. I say yes to you, Lord. Even if you want me to do the unthinkable, I say yes. If you can say that prayer, can, can I ask you to come forward for some prayer? Can we stand on this together? How many of you would be willing to say that prayer with me today? If it's you, could you please stand up? Even if you don't want to come forward, I am going to ask you to stand. How many of you will say that prayer with me today? But we're going to say yes to our weakness and yes to the Lord simultaneously. We're going to acknowledge that we are weak. We have no idea what we're doing. We've never been in this place before. We have no idea how to build the church moving forward from here. Nobody does. Don't let them fool you. We're all clueless. We are weak. And in that weakness, we're not going to fight it. We're going to just be held by him and say yes.
Lord, um, we trust you more than we trust ourselves. Will you forgive us for depending on our own strength? We know better in our heads, but our culture presses against it. We are weak. And in that place of weakness, we say, you, you are strong. Andor is going to lead us in a song of response. And in the midst of our worship, if you want someone to pray for you, please come forward. We're going to stay in this space for a while. I just want to invite anyone who wants to come forward for prayer or to pray there in your seats. We're going to close the service formally, but we've got lots of time. And God's here. He's moving. He's active. He's inviting and awaiting our response. So just encourage you to um, respond to the Lord's invitation this morning. 